Every year, hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children flock to the shores and woods of Acadia National Park. It's a natural gem that lies practically in our backyard. In August alone, the park saw 800,000 visitors. To that point, there had been 2.75 million. The total for this year is almost 4 million. 4 million visits to Acadia National Park. And why? Well, if you've been there, you know. Acadia is stunning. It's unrivaled in its unique beauty, its pristine nature, accessible hiking trails, scalable mountains, breathtaking vistas, towering cliffs, crashing waves, clear lakes, babbling brooks, wealth of wildlife, whether it is the view from Cadillac or the roar of the Thunderhole or the briny air of the Park Loop Road or for those with local knowledge, the serenity and perspective one consistently finds at Scudic Point. Acadia holds out something that we all were made to enjoy something that humans were created with a capacity for, that is to be touched by the majestic, to be moved by the amazing, to revel in awe. This awesome experience is what draws so many so often to this destination that's just a short drive away from where we are right now. And some of you have your park passes, and you rub elbows with those visitors, but most of us don't. We've been there, we've done that, and we haven't bought the t-shirt because it costs a price that only tourists would pay. <laughs> we may take a trip down there once or twice a year, but even then we aren't likely to be stunned by the sights, smells, or sounds. We're going for something much more important like an ice cream cone. How is it that we can live in such proximity to breathtaking grandeur and not notice? Is it because it's so close that we don't recognize its greatness? Is it because it's so familiar that we don't see it? In the same way that we can live in the shadow of some of the world's greatest natural scenery and not be all that impressed by it, so too we can read about and even know that we have a place in the world's greatest story. The story of God's redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus and somehow still manage to lose our sense of its awesomeness, of its beauty. I ask you, Christian, when was the last time you just sat and pondered the Christmas story? The last time you slowly read through the record of when God decided to send his son into this world in order to save it? When was the last time you sat in awe and worship? over what God in Christ has done to make you his child. This morning we're going to, we're a little late, but we're going to begin our celebration of Advent with a series of messages from the Christmas story as revealed in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. And my hope is that it is with eager eyes and open minds and at times jaws agape that we're going to revisit and be amazed at how God, from ages past, reach into human history for the purpose of saving us, to secure for you and I the gift of everlasting life 
in place of the wrath and death that our sins deserve and the condemnation that awaits every unrepentant sinner. So as we enter the Advent season and open the word to Luke chapter 1, I pray, we pray, for a rekindled sense of awe as we see the eternal plan of God spoken of by the prophets, longed for by the faithful promise since the fall of man, unfolding before our very eyes. Our Father, we love you and praise you as we come and sit under your word this morning. Speak to us and impress us with your beauty and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. So it begins in Luke's gospel in Israel and in the days of Herod, who was a king. And Israel at that time, you probably know, was part of the Roman Empire. Rome's interest at the time was not so much in promoting or stifling the practice of any particular uh, religion, but more in keeping peace in the region. So temple worship was still allowed. And that worship relied on the service of 24 divisions of priests who would leave their homes in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas and report to work at the temple once a year and during the major festivals. They would fulfill their priestly duties for a week, and then they would go back home. One of those priests from one of those divisions was a man named Zechariah. Not only was he a priest, but he had married a woman who was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron, I'm sure you recall, was the brother of Moses, and the one through whom Israel's priestly line was established. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth descended from families of Jewish priests. And their faith, we read, was not something simply handed down to them from their ancestors. Both of them were righteous. That is, they were holy. They were just before God, Luke says. Both had a genuine piety. Luke tells us that they were careful to do all that God commanded. They were what you and I would call good people. They lived out their faith. They lived rightly before the Lord. Why do we have to know this about them? Well, it's possible that this affirmation of good character had to be made by Luke. Because there's a detail in their life that would have cast doubt on their faithfulness. Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. And since the scripture teaches that children are a gift, a reward from God, some had taken upon themselves to view childlessness as a curse or a judgment from God. But that was not true. That's not a right interpretation. Neither Zechariah nor Elizabeth had done anything sinful to preclude them from having children. Elizabeth was simply infertile. Maybe you can relate to that personally. And you know that disappointment of wanting a child but not being able to conceive. If not, then just take a moment now, if you would, to put yourself in the place of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Just for a second, slow down and catch a sense of the deep sadness these two devout people had experienced over a long period of time as they prayed to God and they prayed to God for a child. You know they were judged. You know they were looked down upon. You know people talked about them. How could they not feel a sense of guilt? How could they not wonder in their heart of hearts if they weren't somehow responsible for this, somehow at fault, how often they must have prayed and begged of God like Hannah prayed for Samuel 
in her great distress, but God had not answered in the affirmative. And yet, despite his not answering their prayers as they wished, they continued to serve him, and they continued to live righteously before him. Would you do that? If you were in their shoes, would you do that? Or do you have a different agreement with God? Because many people do. They are fine with God if he behaves as they believe he ought. If he tows the line for them, they will tow the line for him. But they will walk away from him if he doesn't hold up what they believe to be his end of the bargain. This is what we call a transactional relationship. It is a conditional relationship built on the expectation of reciprocation. God, I will live for you, and in return, you will give me what I want. I will follow the rules, and you will give me a good job, a good spouse, good health. How disappointing when you feel you've lived up to your end. And then he withholds something that you deeply desire or believe wholeheartedly that you must have in order to be happy or fulfilled. Many in crushing moments like those will conclude that God is uncaring. Some will even say that he doesn't exist. And the deceitfulness of their flawed thinking allows their hearts to become hardened and they fall away from faith. But not Zechariah and not Elizabeth. To their knowledge, God had not answered their many prayers the way they wanted him to. He seemed to have told them no, and yet they remained faithful to him, walking in his ways, keeping his commands, surrendered to what they believed was his will. And they served the Lord. Zechariah, in particular, had temple duty as a priest a few times a year. And as we pick up Luke 1, it's his week to serve. And we might say, well, as fate would have it, or if the writer of Ruth were penning this story, he might say, behold, and it came to pass. It it wasn't coincidence, though. It came to pass that Zechariah was chosen on this day as the one who would go into the temple and burn the incense because it was the will of God. And as the old priest is fulfilling his priestly duties in the temple with many gathered outside praying, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And Zechariah, when he saw the angel, said, What's up? Which no person ever has said to an appearing angel. Because the presence of an angel Even a well-intentioned angel is terrifying. This is a heavenly messenger. This is a divinely sent herald. This is a supernatural being. And Zechariah is beside himself. Luke says, troubled and fearful. And that's only the beginning. And so the angel said to him, and I was thinking, you know, this is something that all well-intentioned angels must be used to saying. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Well, why not? Because I've come to tell you your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? What what prayer? 
It would have been part of Zechariah's duties in the temple that day to offer prayers for Israel as he tended to his priestly functions. Perhaps he also petitions God once more, adding to the many times he had before to, for a child. But his response to what the angel's going to say, we're going to get to this in a minute, doesn't really indicate that he's hopeful about that possibility anymore, that he's not even really thinking along those lines. I, it could be, and I think it is, that the prayer the angel speaks of is one that was uttered long before that moment, which at least introduces the idea, friend, that God may be in the process of answering prayers you've forgotten you even prayed. Perhaps what you interpreted as a no or a not yet, was in fact in a while. God hears our prayers. The only time the scripture says that God doesn't hear, is Psalm 66 verse 18, at least to my knowledge, is if we are praying to him while harboring iniquity, which is a way of saying considering wrongdoing in our hearts. Psalm 66 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If we are purposing to commit sin, if we are unwilling to forsake all sin, if we are not striving to be holy, but we are carefully reserving a place for weeds in the garden of our hearts, then we're playing a game. And we're being double-minded, and God will not listen. But if we are sincere, and to the best of our abilities, we're pursuing God, and we're pouring ourselves out to God, he hears our prayers and he answers them, but he answers them always in his time. Zechariah has prayed and now he experiences this amazing invasion of heaven into his world. And it's an extraordinary circumstance. God has sent an angel to him with an extraordinary message. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll call his name John and you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Well, how does the angel know? Because God has ordained it to be. And this angel has a job to announce what God has declared will be. And among all the takeaways of the miraculous occurrences that we read about, the flurry of supernatural angelic activity surrounding the Christmas story, this is the most basic of the takeaways. The sovereign God of the universe is working. He always has a plan. And here in the first pages of Luke's gospel, we find a glimpse of his eternal plan unfolding. The angel announces to Zechariah that he will have a son. And then he goes on to tell, tell him about the son. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, maybe the specificity of those prohibitions strike you as a bit odd. Certainly, if this child's going to be great before the Lord, there are a lot more things for him to avoid than wine and strong drink. You can just read the first chapter or two of Proverbs, and you'll figure that out. But as theologian Adam Clark reminds us when dealing with cultural terms and concepts from an ancient world, it's being obsolete to us is no manner of reason why we should conclude that it was obscure to them. Jewish readers would have known exactly what was being referred to here. Zechariah would have known that the angel is talking about the Nazarite vow. The Hebrew word nazir, 
It means to be separated, to be consecrated. And so you read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And that describes how a person will, for a season of time, abstain from certain behaviors and customs in order to be dedicated fully to God. For most people, that vow is going to take place during a given period of time. That is, it has a beginning and it has an ending. But for others, in the book of Judges, we see that this is true for Samson. Some say for the prophet Samuel, remember when Hannah said, a razor shall not touch his head. I think it was his mom who said that. And here in Luke, for this baby who would become known as John the Baptist, for them, this vow is going to be for a lifetime. So what the angel is saying is this baby is going to be consecrated to God, set apart for God for his entire life. And guess what? That proved to be true, didn't it? With John the Baptist, if you know the story of John the Baptist, you know that he lived to preach the truth of God, and he died because he preached the truth of God. He was always set apart for God. He will be set apart for God, the angel says, and as such he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That sounds a little bit like Isaiah. There's a reason. If it sounds a little bit like Malachi, there's a reason. The angel here is saying what God has previously prophesied is coming to pass. Notice this. Though, God is a gracious giver. Understand what's happening here with John the Baptist because he sends a man, a prophet, with a message to his people that's going to make them ready to hear the message of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. So God is preparing the way. God is giving people a chance. God is readying them to to hear and receive his truth embodied in his son, Jesus. John the Baptist will clear the way for the king. And switching metaphors on you, he's going to plow up the dry ground of Israel's heart so that for some the seed of Christ can take hold. God is a gracious giver because he knows these people aren't in a position to hear this message and they will not receive it. But I'm going to send somebody first and I'm going to get them ready. That's what he did. And he's going to stir up the fathers to know about their God-given responsibility to see that their children love and obey the Lord. He will, he will woo the disobedient and those who are astray back to, to the wisdom of right living. This is going to be John's ministry the forerunner to Jesus, whom God sends to make his people ready. And if that leaves you with a sense that God is for us, it ought to. God is going to give us every opportunity. He is for us. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now what is this repentance that was going to be the centerpiece of John the Baptist's life and this repentance that God wants us all to come to. Well, to repent, you know, means to turn and go in a different direction. And God consistently calls for us to turn away from what comes naturally, from our wicked hearts, from our wicked ways, from our selfish scheming, to turn from those things and to turn toward and put our trust in him. That's repentance. We, we repent of our sin, not when we are sorry for it, not when we feel bad about our disobedience, but do it anyway. 
but when we acknowledge it as rebellion, as an offense against the Most High God, our Creator, when we denounce our sin and go in another direction, that is repentance. And 1 John 3, 6 says, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. That is not to say, Christian, that you're going to be perfect or that you aren't going to mistake, make mistakes. It is to say that you will not be following Jesus and at the same time willfully following your sinful desires. No one who keeps on sinning, the scripture says, has either seen him or known him. So very simply, the Bible's call to repent is a call to turn from sin and to God, and that's going to be the message of this child who's yet to be born, whom the angel announces. And all that is great news, isn't it? That is amazing news, but I bet we all would agree that's going to be kind of hard to believe. Can you put yourself in Zechariah's shoes? You would at least concede, right, that this is a lot to take in. I thought that I got randomly picked to go in this place and burn some incense and do what I've been trained to do and then I'm going back home and all, all, all of this unfolds. I wasn't looking for any of it. it. We could concede it's a lot to take in and maybe we would also give Zechariah a little benefit of the doubt here that he's not really boned up on his angel etiquette <laughs> because he asks for some corroboration. Really he asks for a sign. Just a little disappointing because he's a man of faith. And we know that and Luke tells us that. And yet this faithful, even this faithful man has a mini crisis of faith. And he says to the angel, well, how will I know this? I'm, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, what you're telling me is going to happen is pretty improbable. It's really unlikely. In the physical, it might actually be impossible. So how... Well, I know that this is going to come to pass. John Piper once preached a message on this text. He titled it, How Not to Talk to an Angel. <laughs> so my takeaway there is if an angel appears and tells you something, you should believe him. Okay? But Albert Barnes points out this in his notes on the Bible. He says, people are slow to believe the testimony of heavenly messengers. And that is true on many levels, isn't it? We are slow to believe the testimony of heavenly messengers, whether they be white-robed, winged, and from heaven, or wearing blue jeans, t-shirts, and from our own household. The angel answered Zechariah, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. D did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> that's not the answer to the question, is it? How do I know? How do I know this is going to be? I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Those are powerful words. How many times have you read those words? Those are powerful words. This angel consistently, day by day, stands where you or I, if in our human frames were there, would fall face down as if dead, might even become dead. He lives in the very presence of holy God, God who is high and lifted up, God who lives in a high and lofty place, God whose holy presence in a vision led the prophet Isaiah simply to proclaim, woe is me, I am undone. I am Gabriel, and I stand. 
stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent by that God to you with great news. But you didn't believe me. And because you didn't believe me, you're going to be unable to speak <laughs> until this child comes to pass. So becoming mute is a consequence of Zechariah's unbelief. And here it is, just another supernatural exclamation point. God adds to the story, right? Clearly, what's happening so far cannot be explained in any normal, natural way. It shouldn't have taken as long as it did for Zechariah in the temple. And the people who had gathered to pray outside are noticing that something is going on. And then he emerges from the temple, and he cannot speak. He can't say anything. All he can do is, oh, what that must have been like for him. I mean, don't we want to share great news? And he's going, oh, I... so they think, well, he must have seen a vision. And we say, yeah, something like that. <laughs> His week of service is over. Zechariah goes home. And Elizabeth conceives. And for five months, she kept the news to herself, all the while thanking God. Luke 1, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus the Lord has done for me. This conception is something that the Lord has done, something humanly impossible, divinely possible. And nobody should be able to hear how all this came to be, these 20 verses we've looked at, and not see the hand of God. And that really is Luke's point in writing what he calls an orderly account, that we should read about these supernatural events that were witnessed to an angel from heaven appearing, a prophetic word that in the physical could never come to be. A man unable to speak for nine months, a miraculous conception, and a woman both advanced in years and barren. We should read of these supernatural events and be in awe. Not at the miracles themselves, they're impressive, but at the hand behind them. Just like the the views of Acadia move us to worship. Not the creation, but the creator. Paul Tripp writes, as is true of a street sign, so is true of every jaw-dropping, knee-weakening, silence-producing, wonder-inspiring thing in the universe. The sign is not the thing you're looking for. No, the sign points you to what you are looking for. So you can't stop at the sign. For it will never deliver what the thing it is pointing to will deliver. Behind the signs, beloved, is the benevolent, powerful hand of God making possible what is humanly impossible, enacting the greatest rescue in history.